Hi, I'm Corey Pine. This is News From Nowhere, brought to you by The Baffler Magazine. Subscribe at thebaffler.com. I'm trying to get some uh, more lighthearted guests booked, talk about some less gloomy subjects, but all the funny people are in hiding. If this show bums you out, there's a lot of animal videos on YouTube. I do partake. Two guests this week. First, going to be talking to Jason Wilson, who you may remember from the last episode. He was reporting from the American Renaissance Racist Conference in Nashville, and he has been in Charlottesville. We'll get an update on the nightmarish Nazi assault on that town, which killed one young woman who was marching against fascism and injured at least 19 others. And then we'll talk to Tim Shorrock, veteran intelligence reporter. His article's frequently in The Nation magazine. Tim's been reporting on Korea for a long time, and he recently got back from a trip. He has some thoughts about whether Trump's going to start a nuclear war and why. Let's give Jason a call. He is still in Charlottesville. The international press, as you can imagine, is shocked, horrified, and concerned in a way that it's hard for Americans to appreciate about the political situation in the world's last superpower. People remember what happened last time Nazis started marching and chanting blood and soil. We'll find out what that means. Here's Jason Wilson. Yeah. So, so let's talk about, uh, we can go backward from in time, but uh, you've covered a lot of these confrontations uh, where uh, neo-Nazi groups have shown up often accompanied by militia in camos and with guns, it's ostensibly neutral. Uh, but it sounds like you noticed a different level of, of, I guess, paramilitary organization this time in Charlottesville. Yeah, 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 certainly. I've never seen anything like what I saw this weekend. Um, you know, you and me both have been to a lot of rallies, but, you know, I, I would say in Portland that the, the kind of violence we've seen emerging has often been from fairly disorganized brawling, um, you know, and, and individuals doing what they want to do. Um, but this was something else. Um, you had people, uh, marching information from, um, you know, areas beyond the park that they were staging at. Um, you had coordinated chanting and even, you know, militaristic grunts, the sort of ooh, 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 ooh kind of stuff, you know. Uh, you had people, a lot of people in helmets, a lot of people carrying shields, either riot shields or wooden shields with groups insignia on them. You had different groups marching under their colours, you know. Um, and, yeah, the, the, the level of organisation and also the level of armaments these folks were carrying was, was just something else. Um, I... Like I said, I, I've just never seen anything like it. And it was quite intimidating, as it was obviously designed to be. Um, and, you know, then you had militia guys surrounding the perimeter, allegedly providing security, um, in inverted commas. And, and you know, um, the governor of Virginia came out yesterday and basically said, well, the police didn't move in so quickly because they felt outgunned. You know, um, he was saying that, like... the, the the militia guys have better equipment than the state police. So that's where we're at. Um, you know, these guys are marching in the streets armed um, in, in an extremely, yeah, paramilitary way. You know, um, they are paramilitaries. They're fascists, Nazis, um, white supremacists, and they're not shy about it. Um, and you've got guys in camo with AR-15s giving them cover. Um, you know, I don't know where we go from here. I, I kept looking at the images and reports, yours and others, uh, from Charlottesville over the weekend and thinking, how would we describe this if it was happening in a country that wasn't the United States? Yeah, well, you'd say that fascists were in the streets and, uh, we, you know, with relative, acting with relative impunity. I mean, look, the, the cops... Um, the cops came in eventually. I mean, it was just... It, it, it ended before it was scheduled to start um they, they were coming in all morning and and the whole thing was wrapped up by about 11 40 and the funny thing about these guys is that they're quite compliant with the police you know they just moved out once, once the police moved in and 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 into the waiting um uh counter protesters and and it all kind of got pretty messy from there but yeah in another country we'd say there are there are fascist militias in the streets and and, you know, the security services have lost control of the streets. And, and that's what it was like for most of the morning. Was it your sense that, that the governor was genuine and that the police were outgunned? Or, or was there some level of, of complicity 
with the fascists marching and the militia uh, providing ostensibly security? Um, I mean, probably a little from all of those columns. Um, but I really do get the sense that the police were not prepared for what happened. They were not adequately prepared for, for what they were greeted with. Um, and I really do get the sense that, that they did feel like um, they were outgunned. Um, I, I think that the, the governor was giving at least part of the truth there. Um, you know, even making, making allowances for special pleading and, and incompetence uh, and, you know, uh, c complicity maybe on the margins. I, you know, I think they did not know how to control that situation. So is it your sense then that there's been some level of training going on since since the last uh, big rallies we've seen or, or perhaps localized to the south that we haven't seen in the northwest or in the northeast or California? Yeah, um, there's definitely been some training going on. There's definitely, there's definitely uh, you know, a, a kind of level of management um, of their forces that, that I haven't seen before. Um, is it localized to the south? Well, some of these organizations are national. You know, Vanguard America, the organization that um, the alleged murderer comes from, they've got chapters all over the country. Um, so it's it's kind of hard to say. Um, I, I don't have any kind of sources on the inside telling yeah. me much, but 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 um, what I can say for sure is is that yeah, they're they're clearly training, they're clearly preparing for these events, and they're clearly coming with a kind of a thirst for confrontation and violence. And that's what I saw over the whole weekend, you know, going back to the torch rally. I mean, they're, they're endeavouring to create these spectacles that are intimidating and to create situations that are not only intimidating to their political op opposition, but also to the police. Well, it uh, seems like mission accomplished as far as that goes. Um, yeah. Let's, uh, let's I, I know you've got a busy day and, and you've got to get on an airplane later and all of that. Uh, let's talk a bit about the killer, the, the terrorist who's been arrested. Uh, 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 what do you know about him, and what's this group that he appeared to be marching with, Vanguard America? Okay, so it seems like the usual story, you know, um, his father died, uh, I think, before he was even born. He's had a kind of troubled childhood. Um, you know, people have described him as difficult and a loner and, and someone who has consistently expressed um, fascist beliefs um, from from you know, early childhood, right? I mean, there was some report. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and you know, um, his mother claims she thought he was going to a Trump rally, so I don't know what that says. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, it was a Trump rally for sure. Um, yeah, the the group that he's in is called um, Vanguard America. Um, they're a group that have gone through all kinds of convolutions. Um, when they were American vanguard, you know, they were often described as an alt-right group. So they were, they were more, they were closer to that, that zone of, of, of quasi-respectability that people like Richard Spencer try so hard to stake out. But now they've really drifted into neo-Nazi territory. I mean, if people want to look at their website, you know, their manifesto is talking about the international Jew and, and a white ethno-state and you know, the restoration of the patriarchal family and they've got these printable posters that, you know, imagine a, a Muslim-free America, um, uh, you know, a, a fascism, America's future, you, you know, like they're, they're open fascists. Um, there, now it the sounds like they're openly genocidal, straight-up Nazi organization. Totally, totally. Um, so their leadership claims uh, around 200 people nationwide. It could be less, it could be more. These people lie constantly. Um, but... Um, certainly, they do try to target. Um, they do try to target college students and college age people, um, as he was. Um, they think that youth is the future. Um, they're, they're deliberately trying to recruit young people into this movement. I saw them marching. Um, if there's 200 of them, they got just about all of them out and down to uh, down to Charlottesville. I mean, I, I saw a group that was, um, you know, over 100. Um, at perhaps well over a hundred. So, yeah, I mean, so who do you think? Pay, who, who do, so I, I don't know. You might not know, but I wonder how. How and people have asked me this question, so we can air yeah. it. Uh, you know, we're talking about in some cases like twenty-year-olds living with their mothers. 
mm-hmm. how did their how did they travel? Did they crowdfund this? Is there some funding source we don't know about? What do you think's going on there? Yeah, I've I've heard stuff about bus. I mean, they've been pretty secretive about a lot of it, um, except the stuff they put online. But I've heard stuff about buses being hired and stuff like that. My impression, though, is that most people made their own made their own way, and and the real organisation kind of happened within Charlottesville. So you know, they, they're showing a level of tactical acumen once once they get here, um, which is um, which is pretty incredible. And when they're not in their white shirts, and we need to start talking about white shirts, by the way. There are a lot of white polo shirts, and that's that's the kind of prevalent uniform throughout this this whole bunch of groups. When they're not in their white shirts, you know, a lot of them look either like nerds or like the guy on the lacrosse team, you know, the real street fighters. And so they kind of they kind of blend in. They're white American boys um, in a college town. Um, so, you know, I don't see that they would have had any trouble or even been looked particularly out of place when they were traveling on their way to to charlottesville which is a college town right uh so very it sounds like we don't have a lot of information about or reliable information about how big this group is um it's yeah it seems that these are people who it's almost stating the obvious at this point but met up online before they ever knew each other in person I think online and in the chapters that they have, which are kind of a lot of them centered on colleges around the country, you know. Um, so I, I, I can't speak to whatever face-to-face recruitment might be going on on college campuses. Um, but, but yeah, they make a huge effort online. I mean, a, a lot of the chapters have got their own Instagram accounts where they're putting out these racist images. And, and you know, Instagram seems fine with that. Um, They've got a website with printable flyers that you can print out and stick around your college, you know, talking about, um, uh, you know, a Muslim-free America and the international Jew and all this kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, they're clearly proselytizing and organizing online. Um, as to the face-to-face stuff, you know, it must be happening. They must be meeting in their chapters. Um, but whether whether that means they're recruiting face-to-face and, and, and stuff like that, you know, I, I just don't know. But, but this group... Um, Vanguard America used to be American Vanguard, and and it goes back to a bunch of groups that have, have arisen um, uh, from um, uh, internet forums, Nazi internet forums, stuff that's even more niche maybe than uh, than Stormfront and the like. Um, so it's definitely got its origins online, and I you know I think we can say f- with certainty that young men are being radicalised online and, and becoming part of this movement. Quite quite remarkable to see young. American men marching down the streets with Nazi insignia, chanting "blood and soil." Can you talk a little bit about that phrase uh, and and what it represents? Yeah, well, it's 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 a direct derivation of of uh, a, a Nazi phrase and concept, and it's it's meant to link whiteness, white ethnicity, with the particular national territory of the United States, and to imply that um, this country should simply be white, um, that, that it is for white people and people who aren't white should be, should be excluded, you know, by force if necessary. So it, it is a, a genocidal concept. It's a genocidal concept derived from the genocidal movement that was Nazism. Um, so yeah, it it tries to link a people with a country and, and to leave no room for anybody else. And a uh, race with a country, not even a people, a a race with a country. Yeah. Well, and People might, in their minds, think, "How how can they think this when you know America was settled by Native Americans, and then white people came later, right? It killed a lot of Native Americans." But there's a, there's an alternate history, isn't there? As these fascist movements always have a, a, an alternate history that justifies their arguments. Right, and and it's inconsistent and incoherent. But yeah, I mean, they, they see the the conquest as they would they would proudly put it of, of of Native American peoples as as part of you know white people's destiny and 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 as a period when the white race was was virile and uh, and strong and and you know a period that that just throws what they would see as contemporary decadence into even greater relief. Um, you know, so so yeah, that's their. That's their narrative, you know, the present of multiculturalism, of sexual liberation, uh, of feminism, um, is is one of decline and decadence. And and you know, when when white settler colonialism was going, and and 
white white people and white men were were killing Indians and enslaving African Americans. That's that's the period they look back on with fondness. That's the period where they see the white race as having peaked. Some of them even have bogus archaeological evidence uh, to 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 argue that you know the Norse people uh, were first to settle uh, America and then were driven out or something. Uh, you know the. They'll come up. My point is, they'll come up with anything, uh, however spurious, to justify their uh, predetermined ideology. Uh, right. Well, they have to. De- they have to deny history and deny reality. I mean, the most prominent example of that, of course, is Holocaust denial. You know, which is which is still a virulent strain of thinking on 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 the far right and amongst these folks. Um, yeah, you know they, they need to, to make shit up <laughs> to, to make their worldview hang together and to and to retain their carefully cultivated sense of victimhood um, and and their sense that uh, yeah that you know contem- contemporary America is a, is a kind of cesspit that needs to be redeemed by um, by violence. I know that you've been busy writing and reporting your own stories. Uh, and maybe not paying as attention to what other people are reporting, but has there any has there been anything in the in the national press that struck you as off or that that misrepresented the situation there as you saw it? Um, I have not enjoyed seeing passive constructions about this murder. <laughs> That's been my least favorite thing. Calling I mean, it an accident a, or uh... yeah, like a car a car, you know, uh, plowed into uh, a crowd, you know, no. (laughs) A white supremacist drove his car into left-wing counter-protests, peaceful left-wing counter-processes. I mean, I don't know what it's going to take for for sections of of the media to to kind of put those kind of passive constructions away. You know, why are we still pretending that this isn't going on? That's how I feel when I see someone say a car plowed into a crowd in this moment we find ourselves in. And and I'm kind of proud to say at The Guardian that we we have not done that. You know, we've we've called it. Um, So I haven't enjoyed seeing that. But as you say, I've been pretty busy and, and, you know, I haven't read everything. I have seen some really good reporting. I I, I think a lot of reporters have done great work. You know, I'm I'm not one for... um, I'm not one for... uh, sacralizing the profession or anything but you know it was dangerous down there and i think i think this uh this particular uh nightmarish scene as i keep thinking is is causing a lot of people to tune into the stuff that we've been reporting on and talking about for months now because somebody was killed i mean you know you look at the uh you look at the the video and it's hard to come away from that and think there wasn't an intent to murder there every witness that was quoted uh, or put out a statement uh, on Twitter, whatever, uh, seemed to have the same impression uh, right. that, that this guy was driving around looking for a crowd to, to drive his car into. Right. Um, you and me both, I, I would say, have probably lost count of the number of times we've been told that this, this isn't an emergency, this is something we're overstating, you know, maybe it's something we shouldn't draw attention to, but this is where it ends. You know, this, this is where fascism ends. It ends in murder. Um, and I, I hope that that's pretty clear now. I mean, the great thing is what I'm seeing here, what I saw here yesterday in Charlottesville was quite heartening. Um, Jason Kessler attempted to give a press conference and he was he was shouted down by people who were not, you know, masked black bloc supporters or whatever. They were just ordinary people from Charlottesville. And I think, you know, a lot of people I talked to don't usually do, in inverted commas, political things, but they, they felt moved by this to come out and show that they, they don't want this stuff in their city. And I, I, I'm hoping that we'll see more of that. Um, I think that, um, you know, amongst the many, very many brave people I saw on the day, there were a bunch of clergy um, who were there and linking arms and trying to prevent the entry of people into the park. And I think that their witness is, is also really important um, because I think when people see clergy being kind of knocked about, I mean, even conservatives then go, hang on, what's what's going on here, you know? Um, I mean, I don't expect conservative media to, to treat this in good faith. I've got very low expectations of them. But I think ordinary people in this country are really starting to get the idea that that something really serious is, is happening here um, and and we need to deal with it. 
Well, Jason, thanks a lot for the report and the update, and thanks for your work. Glad you made it out safely, or, you know, we'll soon have made it out safely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're all pretty safe now. I mean, people people here are still pretty scared. Um, a memorial uh, vigil for um, Heather Heyer got shut down by credible threats from white supremacists yesterday. So they're not out of the woods yet, but I think that um, the, the moment of heightened emergency has perhaps passed and, and hopefully now people have got some time to reflect and I'm going to take some time to drink some beer and get a massage or something. All right. Well, uh, uh, next, next one's on me in Portland. <laughs> Great. All right. See you, Corey. Thanks, Jason. Bye. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Jason. Now, here's my conversation with Tim Shorak, writer for The Nation, based in Washington, D.C., author most recently of Spies for Hire, a book about the privatization of intelligence. Tim's going to give us a little uh, history lesson about why are we in Korea. And then we'll talk about the uh, nerve-wracking escalation by President Trump when he threatened to unleash fire and fury on North Korea. I warn you, it's not a reassuring conversation. Hey, Tim. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay. So I, I know you're uh, you're probably pretty busy with uh, Korea back in the news. Um, so I appreciate your taking a, a little time. Um, sure. Before we get into the stuff that's been in the news in the last week or so, I want to start with some some pretty basic background stuff that people may not know because Americans just don't know a lot about Asia and even Korea. Um, okay. So. The U.S. is still technically at war with North Korea, has been since the 50s. But just briefly, what what started the Korean War originally? What was it about? So uh, it, it's, it can't really get a brief response, but, sure. but I'll try to do it, you know, as, in as concise a way as possible. I mean, it's rooted, the Korean War was rooted in the division of the country in 1945, it's it's like uh, you know technically, North Korea invaded with force in June 1950, but the roots of the Korean War are long before that, and actually there was conflict, you know, earlier, much earlier. But but you know basically the the division, uh, you know, in 1945 in the late 40s, you know, froze into, you know, super you know communist government in the north, uh, led by people who had fought. Japanese imperialism and Japanese colonialism. So the Soviets accepted the surrender in the North and the U.S. accepted the surrender of Japan in the South. And the Soviets, of course, put in a government that was they were friendly with, but they were, it was a natural government to take over because these were people who had fought the Japanese. Uh, so it's a communist government led by anti-colonial, anti-imperial uh, fighters. In the South, uh, the U.S. Uh, occupied with a military government and uh, brought this guy, Sigmund Rhee, over, who, was, who, was, who had never really lived in Korea. He'd been a so-called independence fighter outside of Korea, U.S. educated from Princeton. He had an Austrian wife, very right wing. He was brought in as president, and the, many of the people that directly ruled and ran the government were people who had collaborated with Japanese colonialism and very, very anti-communist. All throughout Korea, the demand was for a unified Korea, and there was uh, people's committees were set up all throughout the country as soon as the uh, war was over and the, and the Japanese had surrendered. In the, in the North, the, the Soviets had no trouble working with these people's committees in the U.S., the, the, the U.S. saw these people's committees as mostly, you know, communist-driven, communist-organized, and moved pretty quickly to try to put them down or, or deprive them of as much power as possible, but basically would not recognize them. And uh, there was soon a lot of resistance within the South to the way the U.S. was, you know, supporting these sort of uh, collaborators with Japanese and in some cases, actually keeping in power, like police who had been Japanese colonial police, actually, you know, carrying out law and order throughout South Korea. By 19, in 1947, for example, they were trying to put a vote through to have South Korea created as an independent country. A lot of people in the South were opposed to 
a division, a permanent division, and there was rebellions against the Sigmund Rhee government. There was one in 1947 in which the, the island of Jeju, which is south, the largest island in Korea, they voted against uh, dividing the country and uh, they rebelled against the Japanese colonial, the Korean police who were, you know, sent there to put down the uprising. Uh, and there was like 30 to 40,000 people killed at that time. There was like a counterinsurgency campaign managed by the United States. There was other counterinsurgency campaigns in other parts of South Korea in 1947, 48, 49 even. So, you know, the, the war against the division and the war against the U.S. was already going on, against the U.S.-controlled government, <clears throat> was going on throughout the 40s. Uh, 1950, you know, Kim Il-sung and his People's Army decided that the time had come to in their view, liberate the entire country from the U.S. They invaded uh, the su southern communist forces, did mount guerrilla campaigns against the U.S., uh, but uh, they largely, you know, when the U.S. finally, you know, uh, invaded Incheon in late 1950, uh, they drove all these forces, you know, north, and then the U.S., you know, crossed the 38th parallel and, and tried to uh, take over uh, the North. Uh, and then the, that's when the Chinese entered and then pushed the U.S. U.N. armies back down to the 38th parallel. So it ended in a stalemate uh, with this very bitter, even greater di bitter division in 1953. 1953 was when they signed an armistice. It was supposed to turn into a peace treaty, but it never did. It still is an armistice. So you Why have, not? After all these decades, why was peace never declared? And the U.S. has never really been interested in a peace treaty. After the war was over, all foreign armies were supposed to withdraw. And, you know, eventually, you know, the Chinese pulled out their armies pretty soon. And the Soviets had had some, you know, fighters there who were who mostly flew, uh, you know, fighter jets against, you know, these famous fights of MiGs versus U.S. fighter jets in, in the Korean skies. Uh, the Soviets pulled all their military out, you know, early in the 50s. Uh, but, of course, the U.S. military remained in, in South Korea, and it's now a massive power within South Korea. We have, what, uh, 30,000, 40,000 soldiers there? Uh, there there's like 28,000 American troops and uh, there's a, you know, like the largest U.S. military base in the world is just being completed in a place called Pyeongtaek near, near Seoul, uh, where all U.S. military forces are now being consolidated. It's also a massive uh, intelligence base as well. So there's, you know, a very substantial American, you know, military force in South Korea, in another remnant of the Korean War, still today, South Korea is the only country in the world where a foreign general is in charge of its army in times of war. Uh, right now, a U.S. general would be in charge of and lead the you know, U.S.-South Korean Combined Forces Command. Uh, so it's a very unusual situation, but it shows you how much power and leverage the United States military still has in South Korea. And and you mentioned uh, the sort of bizarre situation of the U.S. having direct command authority over South Korean military forces right. in wartime. But can you talk about the kind of governments that the U.S. has supported in South Korea over the years? We hear a lot about the North uh, and, and, and how bad it is there, but but maybe talk a little bit about the sort of authoritarianism that, that the U.S. has supported in the South over the decades. The first president, who I talked about before, Sigmund Rhee, was, ran a very vicious police state. He was overthrown in 1960, April 1960, in a, in a people's movement that they still see as in South Korea as like, you know, the first big step on South Korea's democratization, throwing out that dictatorial government. Then there was a a fairly liberal government took over after he was overthrown. This liberal government was very interested in talking with North Korea, 
And actually, many people from inside the South began to go to the border with North Korea and start meeting with their counterparts in the North at this time, between 1960 and 61. Uh, but in 1961, there was a military coup by a South Korean general who had actually been trained during World War II by the Japanese imperial military. He had been a Japanese military officer during the period of colonialization. Uh, he took over in a military coup that was quickly recognized by the Kennedy administration. And he ruled from 61 until 1979 when he was assassinated. And during that time, he ran probably one of the world's most cruelest and vicious surveillance states and torture states. I mean, this the, the, the South Korea under Park Chung-hee was just a horrendous uh, morass of human rights abuses and, and uh, you know, people jailed for decades for, you know, their, their, in, in torture and, uh, you know, vicious repression, murder of political opponents. And uh, the United States, you know, backed Park Chung-hee to the hilt and actually in uh, the mid-60s, they leveraged him to send... South Korean forces to Vietnam to help, you know, boost the U.S. military force, then, you know, fighting the, the Vietnamese independence movement. Well, this is really important context, so thanks for going through all that. I, I want to talk sure. a little bit about the North before we start talking about current events. So yeah. Just what is what is uh, Juche and, and how does communism in North Korea differ from in, say, China or Vietnam or even just textbook? Marxism? Uh, Juche is kind of like this self-reliance uh, formula they have uh, developed under Kim Il-sung. And, and, you know, Kim Il-sung was this, you know, he's the one who was, you know, guerrilla leader against the you know, Japanese armies in Manchuria. Uh, and, you know, but he had all, well, he, he kind of consolidated his power in a very brutal way, I might add, you know, by basically eliminating his, some of his opposition. But he, he kind of consolidated his power in the middle 50s or so. Uh, and, you know, he had a lot, he was kind of like Tito in Yugoslavia. You know, he tried to thread his way between the, the tensions between the Soviet Union and, and, and China, both of which he had very close ties with. Uh, and he kind of developed this theory of Juche, which is sort of, you know, North Korea being a self-reliant country, not being too dependent on any one foreign power. And so, like, for example, what this translated into in economically was it was kind of like Stalinism in one country. You know, Stalin had said, well, we're not going to wait for the revolution to unfold around the world to build our own steel industry or uh, machine industry or metals industry, whatever. So we're going to build it ourselves. And Kim Il-sung kind of took the same approach. So he didn't become part of the sort of socialist global world integrated market like, you know, that the Czechoslovakia or Hungary were part of where each you know, country had, there was kind of a division of labor within that so-called Soviet bloc. Uh, so, so North Korea, uh, you, know, in, you know, took independent stands toward uh, both China and, and the Soviet Union and sometimes had big disagreements with them. Uh, and, you know, although, they, you know, obviously they're very close to China. But, you know, this, this sort of self-reliance is one of the reasons that they're so resistant to, from outside pressure, and one one of the reasons why you know the U.S. sort of outsourcing its North Korea policies to China is is just ridiculous because China is not going to be able to force North Korea into doing anything. It has a history of you know resisting Chinese pressure and outside pressure. Uh, but it's part of this Juche. It's sort of expanded now the kind of ruling thinking in terms of uh, their economic and, and military development is that they have this line called Byongjin line, which is that uh, the its development of nuclear uh, weapons and missiles is is goes along with their economic development. They're, 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 they're part and parcel of their economic development. The only way North Korea can develop as a truly uh, as a strong you know economic power, is to develop its nuclear, you know, and and uh, missile technology because the military developments translate in, into developments in the civilian economy. It's really not unlike the U.S. in the 50s, you know. 
uh, which was very much led by military spending. So they've devoted a huge amount of their capital into this military development. And clearly, they have a very strong technical development. I mean, the U.S. intelligence has been totally shocked, uh, you know, taken aback by their rapid development of, of missile technology. That's what it means. But, you know, they've had some really, you know, tough years uh, over the last 20 years. They, they did have uh, sort of a flow of inexpensive oil from the Soviets. I mean, that dried up, of course, uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed. Then a combination of, of uh, droughts and, and floods and all kinds of natural disasters that happened. There was a period of very serious starvation in North Korea in the 90s. Uh, and, you know, partly because of its weakness in, in its economy and the fact that it wanted to be less dependent on, on China. And then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they needed to have, you know, economic contacts with other countries economic interchange with other countries, that was one of the driving forces for it when it cut the deal with President Clinton in 1994 to uh, freeze its nuclear weapon development. Uh, and, you know, part of that agreement uh, was, was the United States agreed to have full uh, political and economic normalization with North Korea. And at that time, in the early 90s, you know, just a few years after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the so-called uh, Eastern Bloc, uh, North Korea was desperate for new relationships with both the United States as well as even expanded relationships with Japan and also with South Korea. Uh, so, you know, sort of trying to be more independent on the same on one hand and trying to be more integrated with the global economy on the other hand were two of the things that drove them to the negotiating table uh, with Clinton in the, in the 90s. Can you talk a little bit about the North Korean people as well? Uh, this, uh, it's one country that uh, in the U.S. is understood only through whoever the leader happens to be. And I, right. there's basically no image in this country of the North Korean people except maybe as like a like a updated stereotype uh, like a racist stereotype of the Asian horde uh, brainwashed yeah. drones basically could 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 you just talk about the people there a little bit well uh, yeah I, I can talk from my you know secondhand knowledge of people who've who've been there and lived there uh, because I've never been to the DPRK and I've gone to South Korea a lot uh, but but I think that there's um, you know, on, on one hand, you know, North Koreans are just like people anywhere else. They want to have a good job, want to have a good, you know, good living. They want to have good health care uh, and so on. You know, the, the, the desires of people are very similar everywhere, I think. And, and you know, that's, that, that's you know, they have, uh, it's a highly skilled people, uh, just like South Koreans are. They Lots of value on education. There's a, there's a, there's a very developed, you know, higher education system in North Korea. Uh, and, you know, when people who, there's lots of actually has been lots of, you know, international education and exchanges with North Korea over the years. And people are always impressed by, you know, the scholarship of people and the seriousness of their, of their, of their uh, uh, scholars and researchers. Uh, and, and, uh, they're, you know, the same is true actually of negotiators who meet with them um, are often, you know, impressed with their their skills at you know diplomacy and their knowledge of the world and, and so on. Um, and in Korea, there's a lot of deep feeling on both sides of the border for some kind of eventual unification, so the division doesn't last forever. You know, and people are getting old who still have families. You know, like I, I like to tell the story of when I was living in Guangzhou over the spring. I, I know the mayor, and I, you know, I, I see him occasionally. And I went out to lunch with him this one day, and he was telling me about a meeting he'd had uh, that morning with the Archbishop of Guangzhou, who happens to be about 93 years old. And this was like at a time of great tension when you know the U.S. carrier group was, 
in Korean waters. And, you know, Trump was also making a lot of threatening noises about the danger of North Korea. And there's a lot of tension in the air. And so as mayor was telling about meeting with the archbishop and how the archbishop was saying, like, how he so wanted to go back to North Korea to see his brother and was so afraid that there, another war would get in the way, you know, but, but he, he's old now. He wants to go back and, and spend time with his brother, who he met on a couple of occasions when he himself visited the North back in the Sunshine Days period. And uh, so th that can be replicated hundreds of thousands of times. There's so many people who have family there. And in some cases, they've met them and they, you know, they, they want their country to be at peace and, and to at least be able to, you know, talk with their families again. And it's, it's a very sad kind of feeling you get sometimes when you, when you have those conversations. Because, you know, when the mayor was, mayor was telling me that, he was very pained, you know, that, that may not be, you know, the, the, the archbishop may not be able to realize that. So, you know, it's this longing for an end to this conflict is, is, is you know, deep and, and very strong. And I think it's something that a lot of Americans just don't even realize and think about ever, you know. It's like their country. And when Trump's, you know, when people like uh, Mattis did last week, you know, talk about, you know, well, we're going to destroy the entire North Korean population, um, you know, that resonates. I mean, that, you know, he's talking about killing their relatives, you know. And, uh, you know, when Americans don't even know where North Korea is on a map and want to still want to attack, want Trump to attack it, it's just really disheartening to a lot of Koreans who may not side at all with, you know, may feel very uncomfortable with North Korea's threats themselves, but they don't want to have a war destroy their country. Uh, well, that's a that's a good segue, because la last week was, was pretty scary. I mean, uh, you had Trump yeah. out there talking about fire and fury and then doubling down. And you had a piece, in the, you had a piece in the nation. Uh, uh, and you wrote, you, you mentioned Mattis. And one yeah. of the things you wrote was Mattis, who has been a lone voice for diplomacy within the administration, made an about face after Trump made his reprehensible comments. So is there any, is there anyone in the U.S. government at this point who's, who's not advocating a policy of, of uh, you know, turning uh, the Koreas into ash? Well, you know, Mattis has been very strong on this, you know, since he became Secretary of Defense, and he's been consistently stressing diplomacy as the path that they're going to take. And like, for example, a couple, not the last one, but a couple of uh, months ago, when there was a UN Security Council meeting and, and Haley Barber made this, you know, basically threatened military action at this UN meeting. You know, she was saying, we have all these weapons and we're ready to use them and this kind of thing. And the next day, Mattis called reporters, including, you know, Barbara Starr of CNN, who reports every morsel from the Defense Department as soon as it comes out, right? Uh, you know, called them in and said, look, we are stressing diplomacy. It's diplomacy is the way to go, negotiations. And it was a clear pushback against this, you know, real extreme line, uh, which is why his, his comments last week were kind of, you know, frightening to see. But, I mean, he's... he's Secretary of Defense, he's got to do what his commander-in-chief says, right? Uh, but then, like, a couple days later, like, on Friday, he was at some, you know, meeting on the West Coast, and he was, you know, reporters caught up with him. And again, he said, you know, we're, I'm working with Tillerson, Secretary of State, uh, on diplomacy, and, and that's the way we're proceeding. And I heard this morning, I was listening just a couple hours ago, you know, McMaster, the National Security Advisor, you know, talking on Meet the Press, and I think they're clearly trying to, like, you know, talk things down, like just saying, well, you know, what Trump is saying is that, you know, it's, 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 you know, the most effective way to prevent a war is to be prepared for war, so that's what he's talking about, but we're going to try to resolve this, you know, short of military conflict. The question is, you know, what kind of negotiations are they looking at? The, uh, con the consensus seems to be they want, you know, China directly involved. They basically want China to put the screws in North Korea to make North Korea talk and, you know, to just give in to what the U.S. wants. And, like, that's just not going to happen. Uh, outsourcing this to China is not going to happen. So they, I think there's some people in there that got to, that, you know, hopefully some people in intelligence are telling them, look, the only way out of here is to 
have direct negotiations. And in fact, they have been having, you know, some talks, as I mentioned at the very end of that article uh, that you mentioned in The Nation, you know, there's, there's been this channel in New York through the uh, North Korea's UN uh, mission in, in New York City, and that, that's where, uh, you know, some of the recent contacts have taken place between uh, Trump administration and, and North Korean government. But they've been, you know, fairly low level. We've got to get this up to you know a high level where we you know tell television goes to Pyongyang and talks to them. I, I mean, I, I was going to say, is there anybody on the American side that uh, would be seen as a credible negotiator? But I, I guess we we got to make do with who we have at the moment. We're we're we're, we're, we're I mean, besides, <laughs> apparently at the State Department, there's you know on the, on the second tier under television, there's like nobody there, right? Yeah, uh, it's, uh, he's made like there's not even an ambassador now to South Korea. It's it's just unbelievable. Uh, the, 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 the the I think they're doing it on purpose to try to hollow it out. But I think it would be mostly you know Tillerson. You know, uh, and and there's this current uh, this ambassador Yun who is the, now that he's designated as the ambassador on North Korean issues. I mean he's been he's the one who's been involved. Uh, and he's like an assistant deputy secretary of state or something. But I think it would be under Tillerson that would be he would be the key guy. It, it seems like nothing. I mean, we do hear headlines about oh that the North Korea has tested another missile or oh that this one will fit a nuclear warhead. But it seems to me that nothing has basically changed uh, in the big picture from a military balance point of view, except on the American side where you've got a president sending threats. Well, you know, this latest scare was. Uh, created when the the uh, DIA Defense Intelligence Agency uh, leaked, you know, a report to the Washington Post that they are the North Koreans are are close to having a miniaturized nuclear weapon to put on one of their missiles, and they could fire a nuclear weapon on a missile within a year. And that it was later that day after that story came out in the Post. It was just an hour or so later that Trump made these. These uh, statements about, you know, fire and brimstone, it's still a year away and you still have to test these things. I mean, there's people are talking on the networks, even the government people, as if, you know, North Korea actually has nuclear weapons that it can fire on missiles now. And it does not. And so the other day, the governor of Guam issued, you know, uh, instructions to the people of Guam about what to do in a nuclear attack. And and this is like really, I think it's it's a it's a psychological warfare that you know Trump is conducting on on, on the American people and the mean, world for them. You know, it, it's dangerous. Even if even if North Korea had a missile, a nuclear missile that could reach Washington D.C., why would they launch a first strike attack? It would be suicidal. Oh yeah, absolutely, and they know it. They've known that for decades. You know, they just see nuclear weapons as the way to protect their sovereignty from. Uh, U.S. attack. Uh, they look at, you know, they look at Iraq, they look at Libya, even, you know, the head of the CIA has come to this realization. You know, they, they saw what happened when the U.S. invaded Iraq, when the U.S. NATO overthrew Gaddafi in Libya, that, you know, that's what happens if you don't have weapons to protect yourself. During the period in, in the 60s, when Mao Zedong in China was leading this cultural revolution in China, and China seemed like a country kind of gone mad, you know, that's when they developed their nuclear weapons. And, you know, there was the same kind of talk about China. And, you know, the U.S. finally understood that China wasn't going wasn't to use those for offensive reasons and, you know, contain them and, and, you know, made peace with them having nuclear weapons. Yeah. And so the talk is like, why can't you, you know, like people like James Clapper, who ran U.S. intelligence for a long time, you know, has been saying quite a bit now that, you know, we may have to, like, live with the North Korean, North Korea as a nuclear power. But what I hear people saying, like uh, today, uh, Mike Mullen, who was the former, you know, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and uh, he's now, you know, a big wheel at the Center for International uh, Strategic International Studies, a big, you know, Pentagon think tank. But I mean, he, he was asked this, you know, this about, you know, is it time to accept a nuclear regime in North Korea, like Clapper suggests? And he says, no, I'm not ready to accept that yet. You know, that's an option, but right now I think we got to, you know, contain it. It's, and his main reasoning was that North Korea is uh, unpredictable and Kim Jong-un is not a rational actor. 
And, uh, you know, I think, I think that that idea that they're just this irrational people is at the heart of a lot of American policy now and is, and is very wrongheaded because it's not irrational. And, you know, if they were irrational, they would fire. You know, they would launch first strikes on the United States, but they're not Exactly. Exactly. You know? and the, the, but the flip side is there are, going back to the Cold War, the, the 50s and probably in the 40s, uh, when it came to China and Korea, there were, uh, like, basically elements of, like, the John Birch Society in the U.S. military that were advocating for a nuclear first strike by the U.S. on those countries. Yeah. So is that, I mean, is that what the kind of thing that may be behind that DIA leak? Uh, I think there are some people within the military who think that way, but I think the predominant view by far is that they do not want to have a war. And, and, and I think, you know, even when I heard Mike Mullen this morning, like he's saying, we've got to make sure we don't have a military conflict that can get out of control. That is what the Pentagon is concerned about. So, like, Trump may go to them and say, okay, I want to see your plans for, like, you know, uh, a uh, preemptive strike on all of North Korea's missile launch facilities, which NBC News reported they have now a plan on Thursday night uh, where B-1 bombers from Guam would fly and launch missiles, and, and they try to take out you know, I guess it was like two dozen, NBC said. They had two dozen targets. But the, what the Pentagon will always ask after that order or after that proposal is, okay, we can do this, but what do we do? What happens next? Yeah. It's, it's completely out of control. They know, you know, you, you know, North Korea is very mountainous. You know, you, you do an attack like that, you're not going to hit them all for one thing. But there's all kinds of, you know, conventional artillery on the border. And, you know, North Korea could pulverize Seoul in five minutes uh, once a war starts. It could pulverize that base I was talking about at Pyongyang, this massive U.S. military base. It could shoot missiles right now that it has the capacity for and, and hit Yokota Air Base in Japan or other U.S. bases in Okinawa. So, you know, that's what, the, when the Pentagon knows that it can get out of control, they do not want that. You and know, why, plus, would China, why would China tolerate you know, an American military or, or, or puppet force uh, right up to its border like that China would in an not. active war. China would not. And, like, there's all this talk in Washington now of, like, well, you know, we've got to support a Chinese-backed, you know, takeover of North Korea so there can be a unification of Korea under one government. And, and you know, that China's not going to do that. They're not going to overthrow this, this ally of theirs and end up with American troops on their border on the Yellow River. I mean, that's why Mao sent in a million Chinese soldiers in 1950. You know, it's just, it's just not going to happen. China has put out statements in recent days saying, if North Korea does its own unilateral, like, you know, first strike, they would not support them, China. But if the U.S. attacks them first, yeah, China would support North Korea. It they will like, not. They will not allow that to happen. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure they've told them that. It seems like that, unless Trump were to announce a nuclear strike on Twitter, it's very unlikely that North Korea would launch a first strike. However, Trump might. He might be persuaded to, or he might just want to, and there might be enough generals that would go along with it. Well, what's that... really dangerous about his language now is when, like, the other day when he said, you know, the, we're locked and loaded. Is yeah. that like, in, you know, in a week, the U.S. and South Korea are holding these massive exercises where they're going to fly in these B-1Bs again, right? Uh, that, which are not, by the way, nuclear armed. They're not, they're not capable of carrying nuclear arms the way they're configured. But they can, they can carry a massive amount of conventional <laughs> so-called, you know, firepower you know, massive 500-pound bombs. You can do a hell of a lot of damage without nuclear weapons, right? Uh, so so they've made this, you know, that, that threat uh, very clear. The problem is Trump says we're locked and loaded and these exercises begin. How is Kim supposed to know whether they're carrying, you know, what they do during these exercises is they plan for and mimic 
you know, for example, what they call the decapitation of the North Korean leadership, where they send in special forces and and assassinate, you know, the top ranks of, uh, you know, Kim and their top ranks of the government. And so when, when Trump says we're locked and loaded, does that mean he's ready to do that? Are they going to, can they, you know, mistake a U.S. military exercise for an actual beginning of an invasion? And like, even if you, if you listen today to uh, Mike Mullen, you know, who's to head the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I mean, he, he said this again and again about, about, about Trump. He said, it looks like drinksmanship to me. You know, talking about you know fire and brimstone. I mean, it's like that can be easily mistaken for North Korea as a real, actual threat because American presidents have not talked in these terms like this since Truman talked like this when just before he dropped the bomb on Nagasaki. Yeah. Well, uh, it's uh, it's very distressing. I don't I don't feel reassured after this conversation. Um, but well, you know, well, I think I think you could no, you know. Don't get me wrong. I actually think. I mean, that, that they are going to pursue negotiation because they have to. They may try to get China involved at the beginning, but in the in the end, they're going to have to talk directly to North Korea, and they're going to have to figure out what they're willing to talk about. And if you know what I said in that article, also is that they always say, we will not negotiate our nuclear weapons or our, or our missiles until and unless the U.S. drops its hostile policy. And that clause, it's always left out of U.S. government statements, the fact that they want an end to the hostile policy. And so I think it's incumbent of us here in America to try to understand, you know, like, what would that mean to drop our hostile policy? What has our hostile policy, in fact, been? Because I think that's the key to resolving this. Is like, okay, we have concerns about your nuclear weapons. Well, they have concerns about us being hostile to them, and they want the enmity ended. They've made proposals to end the Korean War with a peace treaty. These have been consistently rejected. So, you know, there, there, I think there has to be a diplomatic attempt made, and it's going to be made. It's not like there's. It's not like it's. We're talking about something that's never been done. I mean, there is a playbook for peace, you know. Exactly. Cultural engagement, all kinds of things. Exactly. Um, well, Tim, thanks a lot uh, for doing this. You're interview. very welcome. Thanks a lot, right. Corey. We also have this week a surprise. A caller. Send me a recording with your message. I might play it on the show. Delete my account at newsfromnowherepodcast.com. That's delete my account at newsfromnowherepodcast.com. Hey, man, it's Stephen. I've been trying to figure out what's really the big threat in this whole Trump administration. People keep saying things like, oh, you know, the Reichstag fire will be a terrorist attack. And I think people just naturally gravitate to this kind of, you know, the last war, the last battle, and, and use that as sort of home base. And so people have this idea that terrorism is sort of where it's at as far as worst case scenarios. I actually don't think that that is the worst case scenario with Trump, but I think that the stuff you've been reporting on is actually a lot more interesting as far as this goes. I mean, I'm trying to think, like, what are the real blind spots? Like, you think about in 2001, how, you know, if you read the 9-11 report, there were warnings that Osama bin Laden was plotting to attack the, the mainland United States, and there were some indication that they were going to use planes for some kind of an attack. But, they, um, but there was a kind of a, a bias in Washington that, you know, that was a stupid worry. We have a similar situation with the kind of stuff you've been reporting on as far as the right-wing violence. I think that there are these huge blind spots in law enforcement, which have been very well documented over the years in the same way that the blind spots around Osama bin Laden were documented in the time between the first World Trade Center attack and 9-11. There's this really willful ignorance about this stuff on the part of those people who are paid to deal with things like law enforcement and, and uh, you know, what they call homeland security. Regardless of why these, these blind spots exist, I think it's really clear that they do exist. And... What's interesting is how we have this mounting uh, level of violence and quite possibly organization um, happening right under the nose of everybody, and nobody wants to pay too much attention to it. Um, and I think that that's actually the single biggest uh, threat right now is that um, you know the Reichstag fire would be actually you know something like uh, you know the Reichstag fire basically like uh, I think the most likely threat is something more like a you know a vicious pogrom in uh, in some town or city in the United States where like you know organized militia group goes out and you know intentionally massacres Muslims or um, 
you know, massacres uh, Jews or whatever. And, and, and the thing about that kind of threat is that not only is law enforcement not set up for it, but actually, you know, the kind of activist left or whatever you want to call the kind of, you know, permanent activist community is totally not set up for that either in the sense that there are a lot of people who are ready to organize against Trump or organize even around things like, uh, you know, immigration issues or, or online privacy or whatever, you know, kind of specific issues. But when it comes to actual like physical defense, there certainly is a is a lack of understanding and awareness of how to physically protect people. And I think that if the attack happened against, you know, Jews or Muslims or some other group, I hope that, that there would be a large number of people who would get out and stand up for people. But these fascists, you know, they're clever and, and they might figure out wedge issues, like kind of wedge points where they um, try to separate one group from another, one, one kind of people from another. So um, I don't know. Anyway, that's um, just the kind of thing I'm thinking about as far as uh, actual threats in the Trump era. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jason. Check out their articles. I'll link to them in the show notes. And subscribe at thebaffler.com. I'm Corey Pine. This is News From Nowhere. Thanks for listening. Later.